All right, just a warning, this has not yet been approved for CoJet for Maricopa County. You can probably use it for CoJet for other courts and for CLE, probably. This conference will now be recorded. All right, good morning and welcome to the August JP Roundtable. Uh, we're gonna start with a, um, a presentation on jury trials. This was requested. Uh, and so that it can be recorded uh, and used for future reference. Yeah. I, have some, I have made some changes to the uh, PowerPoint that I did email out to you a couple days ago, and I'll go ahead and send out the updated materials. So we'll start with statutes, rules, resources, and eligibility. There are several places where you do find provisions for jury trials. Uh, in Title 21 and Title 22. Well, I'm going to go ahead and mute you, or do you want to, can you mute? And then um, these are the rules where we will find instructions on jury trials. Uh, so for criminal, obviously, they're in the criminal rules. Uh, for justice courts, we've got them both in the justice court uh, rules of civil procedure and in the Rules of Procedure for Eviction Actions. And can a lot of else, us, Sorry, Charles. Can everyone else see Charles' PowerPoint, or is it just me that can't see it? I just see Charles. I can see right. it. I might switch to my iPad. Thanks. Oh, weird. Not, not that there's anything wrong with seeing me. Um, so, uh, just remember, we always have the resources that we got back at NJO, uh, but these are the chapters in the Limited Jurisdiction Bench Book and the Limited Jurisdiction Reference Manual, where you can find um, information on jury trials. See, now that you said that, Michelle, my computer went and froze up on me. Okay. All right, so jury trial eligibility. Remember, there's three ways that a trial can be eligible for each, uh, that a crime can be eligible for a jury. Uh, the first and most obvious is statute, uh, where we do find the right to a jury trial and statute is, for example, for DUIs and for contempt of court. The other way that we find it is Darendahl versus Griffith, and that's an Arizona case from 2005. And um, there's two ways that a matter can qualify for a jury trial under Darendal. Uh, the first is it must have been jury trial eligible at common law prior to and at the time of Arizona statehood, or there must be a modern offense of the same character or grade. We And uh, they call that a common law antecedent, um, a substantially similar to a modern offense. And we'll, we'll see that um, that was recently, just last year, put into effect uh, the other cool thing about this is antecedent is a cool word to say, and this is just about the only time you get to say it. Uh, the second way under Derrigal to qualify for a jury trial is a serious offense, uh, and a serious offense, offense is statutory severe direct formally applied consequences that show the legislature considered the offense as serious. Scott, I'm, uh, okay, thank you. Um, the other a uh, jury trial that is um, statutorily eligible, uh, I can recall offhand, is the uh, second reckless driving offense. So these are the, uh, actually it's the, the first, uh, any reckless driving is eligible for a jury. So shoplifting, theft, reckless driving, uh, in aggressive, aggressive driving, and I put in parens Maricopa County, We've had two lower court appeals. Uh, the last one came out of Arcadia Biltmore that specifically found that there was a common law at antecedent for aggressive driving. Um, that hasn't been appealed, as far as I know, in the other counties. Um, but if you're in Maricopa County and you have an aggressive driving charge and you deny a jury trial and that gets appealed, well, it's going to be reversed. It's sent back to you, and you'll have to redo that as a jury trial. 
Uh, so I would go ahead and, and assume that's jury trial eligible everywhere. Uh, DUI and OUI, uh, some of you who do have votes, including Kyle, does have votes in his. Uh, Kyle, can you go ahead and mute yourself? Uh, resisting arrest, and um, some would say that, that resisting arrest is only if it's not passive. Uh, I would assume or I would err on the side of giving somebody a jury trial for resisting arrest. Uh, it, it's just, and, and it's kind of annoying when officers uh, do go ahead and charge someone on, on the ATTC with resisting arrest because they're not thinking down the road of of um, the consequences where you know, they can do a disorderly conduct or an alternative charge that wouldn't trigger a jury trial. Unlawful imprisonment, I don't know that we ever are going to see that. Indecent exposure, uh, an allegation of sexual motivation, and then um, what I have in, in question marks is prostitution. I've seen it both ways where sometimes um, it, it's found eligible for a jury trial, other times it isn't. Uh, you do have to look at, is it a city charge or is it a state charge? Um, so I, I do have that in, in question as a question mark. And, and I will say, and I've said this before, I've, I've been doing this for 18 years now and I have no experience with prostitution. Uh, the new one uh, is causing death by a moving violation, uh, and that's under 28-672. And I have there not necessarily for serious physical injury because there's two portions to that statute. So if you do have someone causing, um, who's, who's killed someone by running a red light, uh, that would be eligible for a jury trial. Uh, the thing, and, and you might want to put a star on this slide, that, that is interesting about this is this is not the same list as who's eligible for an attorney. Uh, the only ones eligible for an attorney on this list would be uh, DUI, OUI, uh, second offense, reckless driving, and probably prostitution if there's mandatory jail time with that, depending on what they're charged with. Uh, all of these other cases, they're not eligible for an attorney. Um, so, you know, when you tell them they have the right to a jury trial, it might not sound as attractive as when you tell them and you don't get an attorney to do it. So these are not jury eligible. I, I got a little carried away here with the GIFs, sorry. Uh, but drag racing, domestic violence, marijuana possession, assault, interfering with judicial proceedings, DUI prior convictions, contributing to the delinquency of a minor, child abuse, obstructing a highway in false report. Um, none of them are eligible for a jury trial. They've been found. Um, those they're, they're appellate decisions which say that those are not eligible for a jury trial. And that, you know, you, if you go back to Darendal and say, gosh, some of these look pretty serious, um, but no, they, they're not serious enough to trigger a jury trial. All right, for those of us in justice courts, we also have civil trial eligibility. That's in rule 133B. A party may demand a trial by jury of any issue for which a right to a jury trial exists, which um, would be uh, pretty much any issue as long as it's a factual issue, not a, uh, not a legal issue, an issue of law. Uh, so the trial of issues so demanded will be by jury, unless all the parties agree to a trial by a judge without a jury, um, or unless the court finds there's not a right to a trial by jury as to some or all of the issues, that uh, the party must demand the jury trial at least 10 days before the start of the trial. If a demand for a trial by jury has not been timely made, the trial will be before the judge without a jury. Uh, but even if no party has demanded a jury, the court may order a trial by jury of any or all of the issues. I don't know that you'd ever want to do that, but you could. Right. And so the procedures for a civil jury trial are in Rule 134. And um, I included in your materials a form for self-represented litigants. Because uh, like I said, um, for, for uh, most of the criminal misdemeanors that are jury trial eligible, they're not eligible for an attorney. So if you're going to do a jury trial, they're going to have to do it themselves. Uh, and in those materials, um, we'll, we'll take a look at that after, but it, it breaks it down in plain English uh, exactly how that's going to work. Uh, for those of us lucky enough to have done the civil juries, most of them are fender benders. 
um, which is the loss in value uh, of the difference in the value of the car if it had never been in the accident, less the value of the repaired car after the accident. Uh, you probably will have attorneys or you may have attorneys on both sides. Sometimes it's two insurance companies that are fighting this out. Gerald, you, you turned on your, your I, camera. I did. I had a, I, you, you can tell me if I ruled correctly. It, it, it ended up not being appealed, so maybe I did, or maybe they settled after the jury trial. But it was uh, a motor vehicle accident with multiple um, cars involved. There were three different vehicles involved. And it went to a, a jury trial, and the, the jury came back and established uh, percentages of liability, which was what the parties couldn't agree on. But it started off as two separate cases, and I granted the motion to consolidate. And when I granted the motion to consolidate, um, the attorneys apparently didn't understand that consolidating the case capped everything at $10,000. They thought the case would still be parceled out where there wasn't a ten thousand dollar cap so and it ended up being a, a huge win for the defense because they had a ten thousand dollar cap and almost didn't care what the percentage of uh that they came back from the jury i was just curious if you're if what your thoughts are when, when we get a motion to consolidate um because there's a a fender bender in multiple with multiple cars involved and they start off as more than one lawsuit we consolidated i think that puts a cap on it of, of, of damages for all the plaintiffs at ten thousand dollars i i could be mistaken and i agree if you actually consolidated the cases did, did the motion come from the plaintiff or one of the defendants it came from what well, was actually I, I think it was stipulated but it, it came from the plaintiffs because they didn't want to um it, it was a i mean I, i've been going into the facts of the case but the uh one insurance company was adamant that their their insured did nothing wrong and refused to settle so that's what triggered the entire procedure um but no one objected if i remember right uh to the case being consolidated because everyone thought it was a good idea to have one trial and resolve everything. I don't remember if the motion came from the defense or from the plaintiff. Yeah, I think the, the, the short answer to, to that is if, the, if you've actually consolidated the case, then it, I think it would be um, capped at 10, which is probably the right thing to do if it's coming from the same insurance fund, which is which may be you know capped at 15,000 anyway. Uh, if there probably is a way to hold the, the jury trials concurrently um, without consolidating if the parties wanted to claim that they, they should each have the $10,000 limit. Uh, we do have a provision in superior court for an interpleader and that might be what the plaintiff had in mind. And it, what, what it, how an interpleader works is if an insurance company says, look, um, the whole policy is, is, is $30,000, $15,000, thirty for all of the claimants and we've got six people each claiming um, 15,000. Uh, so I'm going to interplead it. I'm going to say we're, we're responsible for the 30,000 and you guys and the judge figure out how it's going to get split up. So, you know, it, it, the parties probably considered that a type of interpleader. So uh, the other bullet point that um, I have on this slide is uh, the insurance issue. Uh, and, and you do, this is one of the jury instructions is that you do tell the parties not to consider insurance. The other cool thing about civil trials is that um, there doesn't have to be unanimity. Uh, so if you do have a, a, a pool of six people and only five of them have to agree, that is different obviously than in criminal. So just keep that in mind that if it's a short enough uh, jury that you can do it in one day and you only may have uh, five people show if you don't strike anyone for a cause and they waive the alternate you can possibly proceed if the parties were to agree all right eviction jury trials uh, 
lot, you know, not very many of these actually go to fruition. I think Judge Huberman ha may have one for next week. I think Judge Riggs has done these. Uh, Gerald, did you actually ever do one or you, you got close? I've gotten close a couple times, um, but I've never actually had a, an eviction jury trial. Okay, so uh, just make sure that the request is timely um, uh, and uh, either party can request the jury the, uh, ensure that the right has not been waived in the lease. Uh, the plaintiff is probably going to argue that the lease does waive the right to a jury trial. Um, if that is in play, then you're gonna have to make the determination. Um, some might argue that that's a constitutional right that cannot be waived and you can make that determination as well. Uh, the important thing about eviction juries is that you ensure that you're only setting fact issues to the jury trial, that you're not sending legal issues to the jury trial. So if the only thing you have are legal issues, that, that's not going to go to a jury. Uh, we're going to hang our hat on that most of the time to try to deny um, someone the right to an eviction jury trial. And there, there's a case there that discusses that. And most of these are hot links. So if you just go ahead and click on it in the PDF, it'll take you to where we go to. So the next question is, how do you timely conduct an, an eviction jury trial when we only summons uh, one jury a month or, or, or it takes 30 days to tell the um, jury commissioner that we want a jury? Uh, what And this, this is only an issue for counties of more than 2 million people. Uh, the jury panel must come from a precinct unless the parties waive. And, and I think, I don't think Pima County is at 2 million yet. So th this is just basically uh, a special statute for Maricopa to make our lives more difficult. Uh, so our solution is to agree, uh, we made an agreement with Superior Court uh, that we can use one of their juries. We, we can either send the whole case to Superior Court, which is the third option, not the first. Uh, we can use one of their jury pools and send a judge or a pro tem um, over to Superior Court to do it there um, or do it in our court uh, with one of their juries, uh, depending on, on where that is. So uh, we, that is an option. Um, it's probably a better option than setting the jury trial out in 30 days because if defendants figure out I can stay for another 30 days by demanding a jury trial, you're, you're going to have more jury trials. There's also a specific provision in statute that says you can order the tenant to pay the undisputed amount of rent into the court prior to trial. Uh, and if they, what I have there is if they can't pay the rent into court as a bond, um, then if the issue is non-payment of rent, uh, do, do you have a fact issue or is it correct that they, you know, the reason we're here is they couldn't pay the rent? All right, so pre-trial trial management. And, and I do believe that the, the best thing is uh, for jury trials to make them go smoother is, is to make sure that we've done the work before in setting up the, the jury trial to make sure that everything is ready to go uh, at eight o'clock on the day of the jury trial. So make sure that you advise the defendant of the possibility of trial in absentia. You should be doing that at the arraignment. Uh, you, uh, the judge yourself should review the complaint, any backup citation and any allegation of a prior conviction with the parties. Uh, the party should tell the court what witnesses will be presented, uh, determine if discovery is complete, advise the parties to share the exhibits with each other before the trial, determine if there's any pending motions, or, um, and then rule on or set them for hearing, and issue a trial date notice, which does set a jury trial management conference and jury trial dates, and then later issue a jury trial order. At the trial management conference, confirm the dates for the jury trial and schedule witnesses, including expert witnesses. Confirm the parties are ready to proceed. Set a deadline for filing motions and proposed voir dire questions and jury instructions. And given the new limitations that we have on voir dire, the proposed, getting the deadline for the proposed voir dire questions is, is more crucial now. Uh, determine if it's breath or blood and if, if everything is in order there. Uh, determine if this is driving or actual physical control, because you do need to know that for the jury instructions. 
Uh, and, that, and that's pretty fascinating because I know there have been issues like right up until uh, the jury trial where it wasn't clear whether the prosecution was proceeding under actual physical control or under driving. Um, so now nail that down at the trial management conference. Uh, inquire if any other matter needs to be discussed and then discuss your voir dire practice and get your questions for the whole panel. And um, uh, again, given the new rules, you may need to set reasonable time limits for individual voir dire. Uh, we're doing DUI for the most part, jury trials. We're not doing murder. Uh, we, we should have voir dire done before lunch. Uh, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't take much longer than that to, to find seven people who can sit on the jury. And then for the motions that we're going to get for DUIs. So if you have to set a briefing schedule, set a motion hearing before the date of the jury trial, uh, and tell the parties to ensure that necessary witnesses are scheduled. Some courts, I think they still do this in Phoenix. Well, they did this before the pandemic in Phoenix. I'm not sure if they're still doing it now, but they would go ahead and schedule their dispositive motion hearings on the, the morning of the jury trial. Um, which means that you've got six potential jury trials that may go that day. And so you've got, um, when the last time I had jury duty, you had about 120 people sitting in a room. And then there's uh, an electronic sign that, that uh, counts down on the number of jury trials that are left. Uh, given the pandemic, uh, and, and, and that was, I think, January or February, right before the pandemic, when I was sitting in a room with 120 of my best friends. And of course, I was one of the um, people who had to stay till five o'clock, uh, even though, you know, as soon as I would have walked into the courtroom, the judge would have recognized me and told me to go home. Um, but I didn't get that far. So uh, uh, get that briefing schedule, do the motion hearing before the date of the jury trial. And you, you may or may not then even have, you know, if you can cancel the jury trial before people have to show up, they'll, they'll be much happier about that. So make sure that you prepare, you review the case file, all pleadings and applicable law before the hearing. Um, and at the hearing, if you have more than one motion, determine how you're going to do them first. And you probably want to do any dispositive motion first. Determine if any stipulations have been reached and narrow the issues and get those stipulations in writing or at least on the record. And during an oral argument, ask the parties to tell you what relief is sought and why, and then write the decision. I know Gerald loves to write decisions. I don't love to write decisions. Um, what I will do is I will outline a decision. You know, if we need to take a recess, take a five or 10 minute recess and come back and basically read my written decision on the record so that I don't actually have to um, write anything. But if you, if you like to write, you can write. Rule 16 is the uh, rule that you really need to be familiar with before you do one of those hearings. Uh, parties must make all motions no later than 20 days before the trial, except that lack of jurisdiction may be raised at any time. The court can preclude any motion, defense, objection, or request not timely raised by motion unless the basis was not then known and could not have been known through re reasonable diligence. You look to rule 16.2 to determine procedure, that is who goes first and who, who needs to prove what. Uh, the basis is a preponderance of the evidence. You do have in rule 16 a special duty to inform an unrepresented defendant. So if you do have a self-represented litigant in a criminal trial, make sure you look at that rule. And the rules of evidence do not apply to determine the admissibility of evidence. And that's um, rule of evidence 104. All right, and we do have a podcast for that. Uh, we did have uh, Chris McBride and Craig Jennings uh, come in and do an actual, uh, simulate an actual evidentiary hearing. I think it's a three hour podcast. This is before we figured out how to do webinars, so it is just audio. Um, there's the link to that um, podcast. And then uh, I do have a bench card that I've distributed on a few occasions, and you'll see that the biggest section there is on evidentiary hearings on motions to suppress, where I do go uh, include what is included in Rule 16.2b, which tells you who has to go first, who has the burden, and what that burden is. So that, that's just a handy thing to have.
All right, expert witnesses. Uh, I, I'm not sure. I think I think uh, uh, the one and only expert witness that we had for years. I mean, I've heard he retired, and then I heard he hasn't retired. Uh, may just be appearing virtually. Um, I'm not sure, but it, it can be uh, a problem to get uh, your expert witnesses scheduled. So you must um, you know, order them to schedule their expert witness as soon as possible. Figure out who the expert witness is. Uh, if, if they um, have an issue, they, uh, they can request a subpoena or a court order. Uh, and if, if I, I know there are places where that expert witness has started one day in, in Scottsdale and finished it in surprise. Uh, if you, you know, um, know what their schedule is, uh, you, can, you can work them out to testify in two different cases uh, in two different cities at the same time. Um, so the parties should confirm the date and time for their expert witness. Uh, we can call an expert witness out of order. Uh, you know, you, you do have to explain to the jury what you're doing, but if, if, if you need to, you can do that. Uh, and then make sure that you include the final jury instruction on expert witnesses. Fred, can you go ahead and mute yourself or do you want me to mute you? All right, so for expert witness availability, uh, this is a gem uh, that not everyone is aware of. It's, it is a lower court appeal, um, so it's not precedent, but uh, it, it can be persuasive. Uh, it's called State versus Thompson. This is a case from uh, Quentin Tolby when he was the JP in Glendale. Uh, and so uh, in that case, he denied a motion for continuance because of the unavailability of the expert witness. And, and that was the, you know, the one and only. Uh, he had granted three earlier motions to continue. The case was over 200 days old. And uh, Superior Court Judge Michael Jones said, uh, the court, this court must review the trial court's order denying the appellant's motion to continue only for an abuse of discretion. There is no abuse of discretion unless the trial court's actions substantially prejudice the defendant. Okay, and you'd think, well, if their expert uh, isn't available, isn't that substantial? And no. <laughs> uh, J Judge Jones further pointed out appellant made no attempt to secure the attendance of another criminalist who presumably could testify as to the same scientific principles or infirmities inherent in the breath analysis process. And we do have other experts who, who are now uh, doing this in the Arizona courts. Uh, Judge Jones pointed out no subpoenas were issued, so counsel was not serious in securing attendance at the trial or it was not essential to their defense. And finally, uh, this, and this is pretty funny, the particular facts of this case indicate that the appellant was literally falling down drunk and unable to stand unassisted, indicates that the testimony of an expert casting doubt on the intoxilizer machine would be of little trial utility. Uh, I'm not sure that, that I would rely on that language, but um, I thought that was humorous. All right, so preliminary jury instructions. You do want to prepare your jury instructions before trial and include those charge-specific instructions. And again, this is why it's important to know, is this going to be an actual physical control or driving case? Because the instructions are a little different. You do review the proposed jury instructions on the record, and then you finalize the preliminary jury instructions and put them in a binder for each juror for both parties. And the binders do stay with the jurors during the evidentiary portion of the jury trial. All right, we're up to the trial. Any questions thus far? All right, the morning of the jury trial confirmed the parties are ready and the witnesses are scheduled. Ensure uh, exhibits for both sides are shared and marked before opening statements. Finalize voir dire questions on the record. Finalize preliminary jury instructions on the record. Uh, does the defendant specifically request instructions regarding the defendant not testifying and the credibility of the witnesses because they don't have to and is any party invoking the rule uh, and also keep in mind the court can invoke the rule if a party doesn't and the rule we're talking about is the exclusion of witnesses so this little uh gif um just shows you what what the purpose of ordeer is is to get people out who may have preconceived notions 
So you do want to swear in prospective jurors. Do you solemnly swear or affirm that you will well and truly answer all questions concerning your qualifications to serve as a trial juror in the cause now on trial? And um, so we're going to look at some of the criminal rules on the explanation of voir dire. At the beginning of any written or oral examination, the court must explain the purpose of voir dire, how the court and the parties will use the prospective jurors' information, and who may have access to the information prospective jurors provide. Uh, and I know in our script we, we, we do that, but we don't talk about who may have access to the information. Uh, and so Supreme Court Rule 123 does talk about juror records. Yeah, trying to invoke the rule during a virtual hearing. Um, yeah, uh, well, we're not going to be doing our jury trials virtually, uh, but yes, uh, and that's why you do have to just stay on top of of who's in the meeting. That's that's why I, I prefer go to meeting over Teams, as I can tell exactly who's in the meeting, and if it doesn't look like somebody should be there, I can remove them. Uh, so, Rule One Twenty Three Ten talks about juror records. All right, continuing with voir dire, and this is new, uh, Rule 18.5F, uh, voir dire must be conducted on the record. It does say in courts of record, and, and some would argue that we're not courts of record, but um, Title 22 used to be titled uh, courts not of record, and they changed that to justice and municipal courts. Uh, so uh, you certainly should be on the record to do uh, voir dire or anything relating to a jury trial, because that's more likely to be appealed than anything else. So uh, everything should be on the record. So the court must conduct a thorough oral examination of the prospective jurors and control the voir dire examination. Upon request, the court must allow the party sufficient time with other reasonable limitations to conduct a further oral examination of the prospective jurors. Uh, the court may terminate a limit or terminate the party's voir dire on grounds of abuse. Uh, so, and nothing in the rule precludes submitting written questionnaires to the prospective jurors outs or, or examining individual prospective jurors outside the presence of other uh, prospective jurors. Uh, so we do have to be reasonable and, and, and you know, if, if you're getting to the point where it's taking too long, that's why I like it in the pretrial trial management conference where you can say, uh, you're going to be limited to 10 or 15 minutes. I mean, even 15 is kind of extreme uh, for that. All right, so 2022 comment to rule 18.F, when feasible, the court should permit liberal and comprehensive examination by the parties, refrain from imposing inflexible time limits, and use open-ended questions that elicit prospective juror views narratively. So we, we now need to refrain from using open-ended questions. The court should refrain from attempting to rehabilitate prospective jurors by asking leading conclusory questions that encourage prospective jurors to affirm that they can set aside their opinions and neutrally apply the law. This is a sea change from uh, when, when we all began. So th this started January 1st, where we should refrain from rehabilitating prospective jurors. I mean, we were all trained to rehabilitate prospective jurors uh, and now it's just the opposite. We should refrain. The attorneys can, if that's a juror that they want to keep on the jury, it, they can try to rehabilitate, but we should not any longer. All right, strikes for cause. And this is interesting because uh, you'll see there's two different um, standards of proof. So in Rule 18.5H, challenges for cause must be on the record and made out of the hearing of the prospective jurors. The party challenging a juror for cause has the burden to establish by a preponderance of the evidence that the juror cannot render a fair, fair and impartial verdict. Uh, but Rule 18.4B says the court on its motion or on its own. When I pointed out that there are contradicting standards of proof, some, well, no, one is, if a party's making it, the other is if a court is. But no, uh, this because 18.4b says the court on motion or on its own. So these are, it, they apply both 18.5h uh, and 18.4b apply 
if a party is making a motion to strike a juror. So under 18.4b, um, the court must excuse a prospective juror or jurors from service in case if there is a reasonable ground to believe that the juror or jurors cannot render a fair and impartial verdict. And you can deny that challenge for cause if a party was not diligent in making it, although, you know, if it's pretty clear that a juror is not going to be fair, uh, I don't think you really want to put that person on the jury. There used to be a couple of comments that provided additional guidance in um, strikes for cause, uh, and those comments were attached to Rule 18.4. I think they were just removed. I'm not sure why they removed. I think there's still good guidance. So a challenge for cause can be based on a showing of facts from which an ordinary person would imply a likelihood of predisposition, predisposition in favor of one of the parties. And a juror may be challenged who has a state of mind which will prevent him from acting with entire impartiality and without prejudice to the substantial rights of either party or does not understand the English language sufficiently well to comprehend the testimony offered at the trial. All right, so we're done with voir dire. Any questions? All right, so now we're going to swear in the jurors. And you'll see there's two. Gerald, did you have something? Well, I was just, there's a, a movement. Um, sometimes it's called fully informed juries, or um, the lawyers call it jury nullification. Um, you will get these people and they'll, they'll cite Thomas Jefferson or something like that, that but believe the, the role of the jury is to judge not just the facts of the case, but whether or not the, the misconduct alleged should be illegal. Um, the, they, they believe that it's a, a check on uh, an unfair legislature, an unfair uh, governor or something like that, if something's illegal. It used to be popular in, in marijuana cases where people thought that marijuana shouldn't be uh, illegal um, I've actually seen some stuff um, in light of the Dobbs decision where if anyone's prosecuted um, in connection with an abortion decision, then uh, the, there's a movement to, to nullify uh, those cases. So I, in my opinion, uh, if, if someone comes in and they say I, I'm in favor of jury nullification, it, it, would, it would trigger um, when they say, are, there's a script question that says, are there any of you that um, will not agree to follow the law as I do, as I instruct it? And if someone says, well, maybe I think the law is something different or should be something different, I think that's someone you bring back in individual uh, wadir or vordai or how you want to say that and, and flush that out. But I, I think that's a, a slam dunk challenge for cause. And, and you... These people are out there. I, I got questions during my recent campaign. You know, why do you think about jury nullification? And when I would slam it, I I lost at least one vote in the room for for answering it that way. Just some thoughts. Okay, that that's fascinating. That um, someone would be savvy enough to know what jury nullification was who didn't have to know that. Uh, the other thing that Judge Williams there did just point out is, do you pronounce it vordeer or vordire? I pronounce it jury selection. All right, so we've selected our jury and we'll go ahead and start the trial. So you do want to swear in the jurors. And I cited, cited the statute and the rule. And of course, uh, this being Arizona, they don't match. So everything matches. Do you swear or affirm that you will give careful attention to the proceedings, abide by the court's instructions, and render a verdict in accordance with the law and evidence presented to you. Um, so that's where they match. The so help you God is in statute, but it's not in the rule. And that statute is the justice court statute. So if uh, you're in justice court, you probably should go ahead and say so help you God. If you are in city court, you don't have to say the so help you God, it's not in the rule. Uh, you can read the charges, uh, unless the parties agree to waive that, but probably not. Uh, again, the jury gets copies of the preliminary instructions, and then the attorneys make their opening statements. 
All right, so this is the rule of Yes. Sorry. Uh, kind of going back just a little ways, uh, I should have asked it much sooner. Um, when we were talking about the trial management conference, when setting reasonable times, are we uh, collectively going to decide that, that 10 minutes is a reasonable period of time? I've got two more well, jury trials with that same attorney, and, and uh, I'm really contemplating having somebody else do them just for my own health. <laughs> okay, I'm going to be busy that day. Uh, I've got enough. Uh, I, I've got enough floaters in my eyes uh, that that I don't need to do that one. Um, okay, uh, would we say 10 minutes per witness? Uh, I mean, per prospective juror. Does does everyone agree that that would be reasonable of individual or dear? I feel that that's reasonable, but I've only done one jury. I've only done one jury trial, so I don't. <laughs> what do I know? And, and you know, and, and remember, and this is what I you know tell people as a best practice if if you're going to have a hearing that that might run long is the great thing about telling people there's a time limit is you can always choose to ignore it if if there's a reason to ignore it, um, but you can't just surprise somebody with it like oh you got two minutes left. Uh, so I think you should, you, should, you know, uh, uh, okay, uh, Judge Weed agrees in Yuma that 10 minutes is reasonable. Um, if there's a particular juror that does need more time, you can allow the attorney to proceed. But if the attorney is just wasting time, um, you know, then you say two minutes left or prioritize. If, if, you, if you're doing that trial management conference two weeks before the jury trial, you're giving the attorney warning um, to uh, either have you ask that question of the panel as a whole or to prioritize the questions they're going to have because they're only going to have 10 minutes. So, yeah, I, you know, uh, Judge Sears also agrees that 10 minutes is more than enough. So, yeah, 10 minutes, it, it, um, it, you know, if you're doing a murder trial, we're going to go more than 10 minutes. But for a DUI, no. So um, this is... This is from script on um, what to tell the jury uh, when you do have the exclusion of witnesses when the rule has been invoked. And again, you can invoke the rule if the parties don't. All right, jury questions and non-jury charges. Uh, so before you dismiss a witness, check for juror questions. And, and, and I should do stars for this myself because I, I usually forget this. <laughs> and, um, you know, the, the witness might be heading out the door and then the, the bailiff will like, judge, judge, there's a question like, oh, all right. So, you know, check over there if there are any jury questions before that witness leaves. Um, Rule 18.6 does say the jurors must be instructed that they're permitted to submit to the court written questions. And uh, we've got a good form for that. And we actually did put that form in our forms uh, library, uh, and, and I'll bring it up after the PowerPoint so we can go through that because I, I think it's a really good form to use. Yeah, as a bottom line, I mean, they can always just tear off a piece of paper and um, just write the question on that, but you'll see the advantages of the form. And I know that during the pandemic, one of the issues that we had is you, you, the jurors probably want their question to be anonymous. Um, which you can do when you have seven people sitting together, but when we spread them out all over the courtroom, uh, it was kind of you know hard like to to keep it anonymous that they were asking the question. Um, now that we're putting jurors closer together again, we may be getting those questions again. All right. So the other point that I have there is if there are non-jury charges, get testimony during juror recesses before dismissing the witness. Um, this one, I, I don't forget. <laughs> I do forget the, the juror question, but I don't forget. If you've got any non-jury charges, um, then figure out with this witness bef um, before the witness leaves whether or not the parties have, have additional testimony that they want to get out before that witness leaves. And you, you do want to do this. Uh, I mean, you can call them up if the jury's still there. Uh, and and say, do you have any um, evidence regarding the non-jury charges? If they don't, no problem. You can dismiss the, the witness. If they do, 
um, and you tell the jury we we have a, a recess, uh, get the jury out of there, and then get that other evidence from that witness so you can dismiss the witness. All right, bench conferences, and this is from the script on what to tell people about bench conferences. All right, and uh, admonitions, and, and of course, Judge Triggs knew this was coming. Uh, and so uh, for every recess, remind the jurors about the admonition. Uh, after the recess reconvened, and note for the record, the presence of the parties and the jury. And Judge Triggs, do you want to talk about the Driggs jury admonition? Sure. I don't know how many of you haven't heard it yet, but um, this counts not Judge Lenore Driggs, but Judge Adam Driggs had to do this because in his first jury trial on the criminal bench, um, they, they had a three-day trial. Third day, they were just about to start closing arguments, and so they broke for lunch. And during lunch, another judge was at a restaurant, took a picture and sent to him and said, is this your jury? And they were all at a bar drinking beer. And so, you know, he didn't want to have a mistrial. He didn't want them making a decision if they had, you know, had been drinking. So instead of chastising them, he just said something had come up and that they needed to continue the rest of the jury trial tomorrow. He would buy them lunch. They were okay with coming back. And so they all were happy to come back and he had it taken care of um, but from then on he felt like he needed to maybe give that admonition to not drink during lunch thank you uh and, and i also like the gif um that, that's why we want to make sure that they're not drinking at lunch so we did have a question about do, do the attorneys need to know about the jury question absolutely that's one of the reasons i like this form is um at the top you'll see the jury the juror will write their question without signing their name. Uh, and then it goes to both attorneys uh, who indicate whether they object or whether they don't object. Uh, and then your ruling, if there is an objection, and then at the bottom, um, who's gonna ask it? Uh, because you can have one of the attorneys ask it, you can have the judge ask it. Uh, and so you keep this for the record in case there's an appeal. And, and again, this, this ensures that you have everyone uh, that, that you followed the correct process for a juror question um, because the rule does specifically say uh, that the uh, the judge uh, shall consider the any objection from the attorneys just just like any other question it is subject to to that All right, motion for directed verdict. Uh, it's not called that, but everyone is going to um, call it a directed verdict. Of course, you do that, and, and what I do is as soon as the, uh, the state rests, um, I will just immediately tell the jury that we're recessing, because uh, I assume that the defense is gonna make that motion for directed verdict. Uh, it's actually a motion for judgment of acquittal pursuant to rule 20. And um, in order to grant that, you would have to find that there is no substantial evidence to warrant a conviction. Um, substantial evidence is in quotes because that basically means if you look at the cases on that, it's, is whether there's any evidence to warrant a conviction. Uh, so it's actually a pretty low standard. Um, you basically have to, would have to find uh, that the state totally missed an element uh, and there's just really no way that a jury could could um, convict the person. Uh, but you do have to rule on that motion. You cannot take it under advisement. Uh, the motion can be revived after the um, after the defense presentation. Uh, I, I don't know that you should be doing that, but you you can't take it under advisement. You do have to rule. All right, submitting the case to the jury. Uh, so you recess, settle the final jury instructions with the attorneys. Again, do that on the record. Uh, you review the proposed instructions and forms of verdict on the record. 
finalize the final jury instructions. Again, you have a binder for each juror and both parties. Include the verdict slips, jurors' notes, and admitted exhibits to go into the deliberation room. Select the alternate juror and prepare the exhibits for the jury. You, you select the alternate juror at this time, but you don't tell the alternate juror who they are. Uh, all right, uh, and then you reconvene, and then closing arguments and jury instructions. And I have two asterisks and uh, two um, things listed after that, because this again, being Arizona, they don't match. Rule 19.1 does say closing arguments and then jury instructions. Uh, and that's how I like to do it. I, I like to have the last word. Um, and the attorneys will then they'll say, well, how do we know what your jury instruction? Well, and I say, because you're going to say, and the judge is going to instruct you, and then you're going to look really smart because you know you can anticipate what I'm going to say. Um, attorneys will want to go after the jury instructions. So rule 19.1 says closing arguments first, jury instructions second. The recommended Arizona jury instruction has it the other way around with the jury instructions going before the closing argument. Um, so uh, work this out with the attorneys uh, before you call the jury back in as to what is going first. Do, does anyone, I mean, I, I prefer um, having the jury instructions last. Does anyone you know, prefer doing it the other way? All right, so um, rule 22.2 does require that you read to jurors the forms of verdict. So you hold them up and read them. And then this is the script for excusing the alternate juror. All right, so you place the bailiff under oath to take charge of the jurors. And here is that oath for the bailiff. The bailiff does wait outside the jury room. They don't wait in the jury room. Um, hopefully they can't hear any screaming coming from the jury. Uh, admonish the defendant to wait for the verdict or waive his right to be present during the reading of the verdict. Uh, do that before the defendant leaves. And then rule on any non-jury counts. So if there's any additional evidence that um, the parties want to present on the non-jury counts, you do it while the jury is deliberating. Um, so for example, if you've got some civil traffic uh, matters to rule on, um, the defendant can take the stand now. Uh, and. Uh, there, uh, because uh, they're they're actually you can you can um, hold it against the defendant for not testifying on a civil traffic matter. You can't on a criminal, but you can uh, on a civil traffic. Um, I would go ahead and have the sentencing paperwork prepared, which includes the mandatory minimums, uh, at least in Maricopa County, because they've never asked for anything other than the mandatory minimums. Uh, and if uh, the jury comes back not guilty, then you just tear them up. If the jury comes back guilty, then you, you've got that paperwork ready. Uh, you also have to determine whether or not there's any restitution. And then is the jury running long? So under Rule 22.1, the court must not require a jury to deliberate after normal working hours unless the court, after consulting with the jury and the parties, determines that evening or weekend deliberations are necessary in the interest of justice and will not impose an undue hardship on the jurors. Uh, so you do have to be careful about that. Um, I, and I assume after normal working hours would be five o'clock. You also have to ensure that any clerk or bailiff that is going to stay late can stay late and isn't going to create any problems um, with overtime or with their schedule as well. So, uh, you know, make sure as, as you're approaching five o'clock that you're working out, and, and I would work this out with the parties too, uh, whether we can stay a little past five or whether we need to come back tomorrow or the day after that. All right, taking the verdict. So you reconvene. Has the jury reached a verdict? Who's the foreperson? Please hand the forms of verdict to the bailiff. Have the defendant stand. You will now read and record the verdict. And then you poll the jury if requested. Uh, they didn't used to, attorneys didn't used to ask for the jury to be polled. And now uh, but, uh, they seem to ask for it every time. And that's not a big deal. You just uh, read this. 
in a moment, I will ask each of you the following question. Is this your true verdict? You need only answer yes or no, yada, yada, yada. And then to each juror, is this your true verdict? And then discharge the jury. Uh, so members of the jury, on behalf of all the participants, I want to thank you for your service to the community. The admonition's now lifted. You're free to talk with anyone about the case. You're now free to go drinking as well. Uh, you're free to leave or remain to watch the rest of the trial. If the verdict is guilty, set the sentence date or sentence if they go ahead and agree to be sentenced. Uh, a lot of defendants want to return to be sentenced because they don't want you know, a lot of courts will say you have to do your jail time within 30 days. So they want to postpone the sentencing and come back so that they can um, start the jail time later. And, and if that's the issue, and you know, I, I'd rather go ahead and set the jail sentence out um, 60 days rather than uh, postpone the sentencing and come back and asking for 30 days. Just let's get it taken care of. Uh, make sure that you allow the defendant to allocute and um, address a prior conviction, either a trial to the court or the defendant admits on the stand. You, you don't do the, you, the prior conviction while the jury's um, while the jury is deliberating because you don't need to address that unless they actually uh, do find the person guilty. So um, the prior conviction, if you go to trial on it, the state must prove the prior conviction exists. The defendant is the person who was convicted. The defendant was represented by counsel or waived representation by counsel at the time of receiving the prior conviction. And that's why it's important for us to be appointing attorneys on DUIs. Uh, even if you re um, require a higher contribution for the uh, public defender, that is a better alternative than saying, you make too much money, I'm not gonna appoint a public defender. And so they represent themselves uh, if they again, then get another DUI, they can argue that they were denied the right to counsel. The state has the burden of proving each of these elements by clear and convincing evidence. That clear and convincing is not beyond a reasonable doubt, and it's not a preponderance. It's somewhere in between. Uh, so if if a preponderance of 51% and beyond a reasonable doubt is 99%, then clear and convincing is probably 75%. Uh, if the state proves each of the elements by clear and convincing evidence, then enter a finding that the allegation of prior conviction is true. All right, and then um, this is from the language uh, on what happens if you do have an impasse in, de de impasse in deliberations, thank you. Uh, and so, you, you know, you do want to encourage them to reach a decision. You don't want to coerce them into reaching a decision because again you are going to have to ask them under oath is this your true verdict and so this um you know and then if it does appear that the jurors are at an impasse declare a mistrial or have the jury continue to deliberate depending on the response received and the demeanor of the presiding juror and your own evaluation of the situation um, sometimes you'll know what the issue is, other times you won't. Um, and again, you don't want to coerce anyone. Uh, remember, if you're in a civil trial, the, the nifty thing there is you only need five out of six, uh, but for a criminal, you do need unanimity. And if it does turn out that the um, you determine that the jury does get hung, uh, congratulations, you get to do the trial again. Uh, so you would read this. All right, and then concluding the trial, you do go ahead and sentence it or set a sentencing date, and you do discuss their appeal rights. And then these are hot links to the jury instructions. Uh, the first two are to the state bar uh, for criminal and then for civil. The third is for Wendell. A lot of judges can't seem to figure out Wendell. Uh, so um, that, that's why I've included the other two. So you can just click on those to go to the, um, to the jury questions. And so I've just put up here, this is the other attachment that we have for this. This is the 
self-represented litigant jury trial instructions and checklist. So I originally got this from Judge Michelle O'Hare Schattenberg, and then I updated it. Um, and I updated it again to take out the peremptory strikes. So this is up to date. All right, so any questions on jury trials? Any other thoughts or any other discussion? This conference will now be recorded. All right, we did have an off the record discussion and please when you're when you're sentencing uh, do not ever punish the defendant for exercising their right to a jury trial. Uh, make sure that that you don't do that. Uh, and that concludes our presentation on jury trials. Thank you.